Hi, I'm Rhonda Byrne. And I'm Kathleen Harris. And you're, and you're listening, listening to, to the, the Slapcast. Hey everyone, welcome back. This is actually part two of the interview with Rhonda Birds and Kathleen Harreth. I hope you really enjoy it. We're just going to jump right in today. Just as a reminder, Rhonda is the Associate Vice President of Diversity and Inclusion at Nationwide Insurance and Kathleen, the Associate Vice President of Wellbeing and Safety at Nationwide. And we had a fantastic conversation. I can't wait for you to hear the second half. So let's get going. Um, also, when I met you, Shannon, you we, we were meeting for a professional purpose. Um, you were considering me for a board opportunity for um, Relay. But after we had done all that, you actually, I never had anybody say this to me, look at me and said, you know, you're, I really have enjoyed our time together and you seem like you're pretty awesome and I'd love for you to be my friend. <laughs> It's something along those lines. Do you? I don't even know if you remember that. I do. And it's funny because I've only had that experience with a few people in my life. Yeah. And I always walk away with one of those vulnerability hangovers where I'm like, I just did the equivalent of handing someone a note saying, will you be my friend? Yes, no, maybe. (laughs) And ask someone to check it on a card. And I thought, I hope hope they say yes. But did that seem really childish? But I don't know how you make friends when you're an adult. Yes. And (laughs) that's really brave. I'm really impressed. And it made a mark on me that, you know, she was vulnerable enough. And I was like, you know what? And I had enjoyed our connection, too. And so... um, I've been thoughtful about that's something you can do, Shannon, mm-hmm. when you meet someone that you um, is different or um, that you just really enjoy and you want to learn more about. Be willing to actually extend yourself to that mm-hmm. person and go and go deeper. I think that what's challenging in the world is that people are not as connected yeah. um, as we once were. And um, we're looking for more reasons to say why we're different than what we share in common. So... As I'm saying inclusion, I also say, as you're flexing across difference, also be mindful that there's probably so much that you can connect around. And the tendency is to separate and divide based on difference versus connecting on what you share in common. And so I think we need to be doing both of those things at the same time. That makes sense. I know... uh, And you did join our board Mm -hmm. and are still on the board. And I remember... About six months ago, we were at a board retreat, and the board is discussing this very topic. And our organization is committed to being intentional with diversity and inclusion. And we were discussing, like, what does intentionality look like for Relay was essentially the conversation. And there's all these ideas going around the room and everything. And then Rhonda speaks up and says, you know, the best thing all of you guys could do right now is individually just start looking through your social feeds mm-hmm. and just take a look at who you're following. Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, whatever, Twitter, and see how many of the followers that you have, the people that you're following, the influencers that you follow, do they look like you or no? 
Mm-hmm. And how much difference is there in there? And then just make a commitment to go through and start following people who don't look like you. Doesn't have to all be that, but but just fine. So I I like a dutiful, you know, type A. I go off and literally on one of our breaks, I'm looking on LinkedIn, I'm looking on Twitter, and I start following. And I commit to this like for weeks after that. I'm I'm finding one person leads me to another. I even sent her a text, I'm like, have yes. you heard of this artist? And she's like, Yes. I I <laughs> picture her actually I, rolling her <laughs> eyes like, I Yes, I, I know her. And her, the artist is actually her H E R. I'm like, Oh my gosh, her music's so beautiful. And so I discovered that artist because of something I saw on Instagram. And I'm like, Oh, I'm going to follow that person. They seem interesting. And I started doing this, and then I get exposed to all of these thought leaders on everything from racism to diversity and inclusion, and it starts really rocking my world because I'm starting to learn things about myself that I didn't know. And it's because I opened, I did the one thing of just opening up my social feeds to voices that I just, it wasn't that I was purposely keeping them out. But that's why you have to be intentional. I, yes. I, I, you have to go look for. Because the algorithms yep. will do it yep. for you. Absolutely. Right. And like, they only you know, give you you. Yes. They're yeah. only feeding back to you what um, yes. is you. So that's why I try to make sure that I try to change it up on YouTube, try to make sure that I change it up on Instagram and, and Facebook. Because other than that, you're going to be filtering out so much. And there's a degree of that that I think that sometimes people are filtering for the purpose of self-care, but um, make sure that um, that is the, yes. the reason and not a reason where you just don't want to hear anything different. Like even on my social, so I'm very diverse racially, but I also built some intentionality around age difference. I need to be open to hearing younger voices, younger thought leaders um, in the in whatever space I'm in, because the world is shifting that way significantly. Millennials are the largest generation after the um, the boomer generation. Yeah. So I need to be really, really open to really hearing from younger, um, younger voices and being led by younger voices um, as well. Absolutely. We, I think it's part of our responsibility as leaders that are, I mean, we're not old. Mm-hmm. I think of folks who are younger than me as, um, I'm not better than. Yes. I might have something that can help them maybe avoid pitfalls, but only if they invite me into that conversation. Um, but more so, almost like a reverse mentorship. What mm-hmm. can I learn from them? Mm-hmm. And in that, can relationships be built to where we're now really helping to prepare that next wave of leadership? And um, in many ways, I feel like they've, they are and continue to prepare us in a sense for our next level, I guess, if you can look at it that way, not as like a hierarchy, but just stage or phase in our life. And um, being a mother of millennials, I guess, or they're kind of on the cusp between Mm -hmm. millennials and whatever's after that. Gen Z. Gen Z, yeah, all of ours are kind of like on the cusp of that. I learned so much from them, I'm always just blown away by that. Mm -hmm. And so I think because I've had that experience, I have a little bit more interest in that at the same time, if I'm not intentional about it, it'd be really easy for me to go, oh, they're 25. What have they learned yet? Right? Right. right. Because even with like my, my youngest God, well, not my youngest, but my godson is um, 10 and um, and they, they're they 10, 7, and 5 and they're brothers. But um, they are, children are the greatest teachers. If you think that, that I've learned so much about love and engagement and listening um, through those little little people 
than almost mm -hmm. anything else. Um, and I was like, wow, who would have thought that children can be your greatest teachers? And so it's not necessarily to align millennials to children. It's to say that if you have to really believe and move through the world in a way that says you can learn something from anyone and that um, and don't restrict where you think the lessons mm -hmm. or opportunities um, can come from. And that goes right back to curiosity, right? Yes. Right? Yes. Kathleen, I'd like to switch to you because there's something I'm really interested in about your work. We had a little conversation. I'll, I'll go nonspecific, but it was about a uh, substance-free workplace. And you're, you lead the charge on that initiative, correct, mm -hmm. at Nationwide. So it's my understanding, however, that, that there's a second chance policy. Mm -hmm. Talk to us a little bit about that. Should employers have this and why or why not? So um, we do, we've had a uh, substance-free workplace for decades and we've had a second chance policy in place since the 90s, I think. And um, I am a huge supporter of them. I think that employers should. And right now, when you look at what's happening um, across the United States, especially in the state of Ohio, um, around the opioid crisis, right? Um, we've got to give people another chance. We know substance use is a disease. We know it's a disease of the brain. Um, we know how that brain changes, and yet we are still treating people as if that this was a choice that yeah. they made. And so um, one of the things that we do at Nationwide is we, we have a second chance policy. It's pretty robust. We have a case manager. Um, I, I will say that it doesn't happen very often. If you think about substance use, misuse or abuse, um, using at work is usually the last place that people would use, right? Everything else has kind of fallen apart in their lives by the time they've done that. So it's not very common, but when it does happen, um, we have a case management system where we have one person who kind of holds that person's hand all the way through. They explain why they're going for testing. They give them their testing results. They explain what it means to come into our second chance policy and to go through the rehab. And then we follow that person for a period of years afterwards as wow. well. And um, and I'm really happy to say that we're sitting at about 60% um, success rate. Uh, we measure in kind of three to four year increments and then look back in six year kind of look backs um, because it takes people a long time. I think there's a misnomer that people think that you go to rehab for a month and then you're good, right? right. And you may be clean, but that brain has not healed. We know that that brain's going to take at least least a year to really heal from the trauma of that substance use. And so we want to make sure that we're holding their hand all the way through. And there are there are tricky situations, right? We have people in safety sensitive jobs. Um, employers have a lot of uh, employees that are in safety sensitive roles. And so you have to be very, very careful. And when I'm saying give them a second chance, I'm not saying give them a second chance and put them back in that kind of a role where they could actually harm someone or, but there are ways to do it. And, um, and there are great uh, campaigns out there. Nationwide has been working with the Denial Ohio campaign. That's oh, really big here. Yeah, I've been seeing that. In, um, in Ohio and um, and the social media and all of the print and poster. Uh, actually, we, um, the Columbus Foundation and the Adam H. Board have really kind of come together. There are 92 uh, groups now between employer, private, 
uh, and public and um, institutions of higher learning and trade associations that have come together to really kind of say, stop living in that state of denial. That campaign is really about preventing the next generation. It's about what parents are doing to become in inadvertent suppliers by not throwing away their medication, not talking to their children mm -hmm. about the dangers of it. And, um, and so we also want to say for employers, don't live in that state of denial. There's great um, toolkits out there about how to get started and, and how to do this within your workforce. But we need to give people this second chance. And we're not talking about three, four, and five. It, you can hold people accountable, but you can't hold them accountable until their brain is in a place where they can understand the consequences. Yes, mm -hmm. I agree with that. We were chatting earlier about um, do these programs work to actually improve the health of the associates? I'm also curious, so I want to hear your thoughts on that, but I'm also curious if you know of any impacts it has on their families, like outside of work. So we definitely know the, the, the difference. I mean, we we follow people who reach out to us. We have nurses across the country and we follow people who reach out to us and say, I'm feeling suicidal and we've gotten them help and they have not followed through. So, I mean, we have actual cases where we know that, that it's made a difference. There's a big debate um, that's kind of gone back and forth over the last uh, decade or so about, you know, if you do these health programs, do they work? Do people really engage? Do they make a difference? Um, do they help engagement? And mm -hmm. I can say that um, we're really fortunate nationwide. It's not a matter of we spent $1 and we need to get $2 back. It's really the value of the whole program. And it's the value of all the work that we do to create the culture that we want people to live in. And we, our mission is to provide extraordinary care for our members. We want to make sure we're providing that extraordinary care to our associates. But we did do a deep dive a couple years back, and we looked over a three-year period at everybody who had participated in the programs and everybody who had not. And we looked at things like their health plan spend, how much preventive care service did they have, um, did they go to the ER, were they admitted to hospitals. And our uh, folks who participated in the program, and I actually have notes because I don't want to get these numbers wrong, but the people who participated in the program versus the people who didn't participate, the people who didn't participate had a 21% higher medical plan spend wow. and 35% higher catastrophic spend, 23% more ER visits, um, and 32% more inpatient admissions. But then you would say, well, that's because the healthy people participate and the unhealthy people don't, right? That's why they cost more. So we said, okay, let's take it to the next step. Let's look at the people who participated all three years who had active disease against all the people who didn't participate, yeah. healthy and not healthy. And what did that look like over the same three-year period? And the people with disease still had um, better outcomes. The people who didn't participate spent 6% more in the, high, in the health plan. They had 34% more uh, catastrophic cases. They went to the ER 6% more. They had 19% less preventive services. And we know, especially in this day and age, we have so many chronic diseases. The key is getting people compliant mm -hmm. and staying with that. That's what keeps them healthy. So we know it works. That is so surprising to me. I mean, <coughs> it's good news. How, how do we get more people using it then? Do those numbers motivate people to take advantage, do you think? Absolutely. I think it helps for people to... Um, hear other people's stories. We have a lot of testimonials, people who um, stand up and say things and, and encourage other people. And that does drive, um, it drives connectivity. 
And, um, and, you know, you were talking about the different inclusion. You know, one of the things that we've talked about um, in some of our work is, you know, people finding that connection through, the, through their chronic disease sometimes, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. um, and because who understands better what you're going through than someone who's walking the same journey, right? And that can be super powerful for people. Well, I mentioned that was surprising to me. I have a question for you, Rhonda, before we finish up here. In your work and all these years you've been doing this, what are the three biggest surprises you've encountered in your line of work? Three biggest surprises. Mm, well, there's a couple things I, I would want to say here. It's that, um, that there's a, it doesn't surprise me, but um, anymore, but that there's this tendency to think about inclusion only around culture and creating an environment where people, you know, feel feel good and that they can come forward. That is hugely important because again, we're all about the whole person and the the a person's ability to really work in an environment where they can bring their best. You want that. But the other side of it is business impact, bottom line impact. A company that focus on cre focuses on creating a culture of inclusion has bottom line positive impact in terms of profit, in terms of revenue. All of the metrics are improved, Shannon, when inclusion is in play. And you know you can get into the studies and all the statistics, but um, as we've watched. Um, over the years, our focus and inclusion—it's—and it's not to say those are the only—that's the only thing, but it's been a significant driver. Is when you look at the profit and you look at the performance, as it's trended up, as our focus on inclusion has also trended up. It's like it's in there, people. Mm -hmm. I mean, and, and I think for me, I get why. Um, it's like, oh, it's only about making people feel good. But you get a both and. Mm -hmm. You get a yes and benefit. So if you want um, increased um, profit and um, revenue, look at the environment that you're asking people to work in. Care about who they are holistically. Um, and I think that you're going to see higher engagement, more discretionary effort. And that discretionary effort is um, is key. Now, you know, there are times when it working in um, in a more diverse team is harder because that forming and storming. Yes. Um, I don't. I won't get into explaining it, but I hope everybody understands. <laughs> it's like the, uh, a homogeneous team takes off faster. Yes. And so their ability to get in there, click, and um, work, it happens faster, and then they trend up in terms of their ability to really produce and deliver. But a diverse team, they're going to stay a little bit longer here because they've got to figure out um, who everybody is, how to work best together. But man, when they take off, they take off and their ability to continue innovation and to really um, collaborate and to continuously improve stays higher. Wow. So it's so it doesn't peter off because homogeneous teams are going to peter off. But diverse teams that are really maximized and optimized, they um, trend um, higher longer. So there's benefit. So a surprise is when I'm sitting across from someone who is a business person um, and a leader and they don't understand that in 2020. 
So it's not to be negative or to be disparaging. It's to say that it does still take me aback that I'm still selling it in some cases. And I'm not talking about within the walls of Nationwide. I'm talking about as a diversity and inclusion practitioner yeah. holistically that I find myself surprised in that way. So, but what I realize is that it's like anything that you really care about. If you're always in a posture of um, learning, then you should always be willing to teach. And so all of us are called to something. And so for me, I feel like part of what I'm called to is this work of inclusion. And so when I have those opportunities, I take a step back and I lean into it as an opportunity to educate. And then the other two things I would say is that um, that there's a shift that's happening in our world um, around intersectionality. Um, when people think about diversity and inclusion, they tend to think about um, race or gender. Mm -hmm. But um, I'm an African-American woman. I'm a Gen Xer. There's so many different things about me that are not just one, I'm not just one thing. I'm all of those things together. And as millennials and Gen Zers really think about themselves, they're not putting themselves in the same kind of like uh, individual swim lines as prior generations may have. Their ability to kind of um, see themselves across that more holistically is um, changing the dynamic. So how I even talk about inclusion is not... Um, as linear. Oh yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, does I can that make see where we're going with that for sure. It's not as linear. You need to really see the whole. The whole. So even as this is February Black History Month, um, one of the opportunities we have is to see an ex intersectionality around Black history, in terms of for perhaps an example is Afro Latinos. So they can be marginalized as um, in both communities, in the African-American or the African community, but also in the Latino community. But that's an intersectionality that's critical for them in terms of identity and being able to be seen in the fullness of who they are is critical. So that, that's an intersectionality. Does that make this? Yeah. So really, um, and that is really big for the next generations. So as a diversity and inclusion practitioner, really being able to talk in those terms so that um, everyone can see themselves is um, is critical. And then the other thing is, um, one of the things that surprises me is how much that I'm educating around that there is no they. Mm -hmm. There is only in us. And, and as an inclusion uh, practitioner, that has really been something that I've really, really been focused on is that so I engage with Shannon, I engage with Kathleen, but what I see on the surface are just surface articulations. And so I could begin a conversation or um, an engagement with you around, so I'm black, you're white. I can begin an engagement around the fact that I'm a, um, you know, I'm a woman, but I'm a Gen Xer, and and you're a millennial, and, and even though you're a, you're not, my point is is that we're always looking for those things around um, to create a they in a given scenario, and I get to to and for me the biggest thing is those things matter because um, being a black woman is something I'm very very proud of, but if that's all you'll see about me and then decide who I am based on that, then there's so much about me that you'll miss. And in today's environment, um, there is a lot of they 
mm-hmm. that is occurring in the narrative in terms of how we talk and engage and a lot of identity identity things that are happening that really say I need to you know there's this is my corner this is my team and I think I'm just basically living in a world that is saying that I believe that the team is bigger and I really want to engage with other leaders that understand that um, the team is bigger because what we can accomplish together becomes bigger and the avenues to accomplish that shared goal is bigger um, because there's no Barriers. Now we have to figure out how to optimize where Kathleen has strength and where I want that strength to really have the opportunity to shine and to maximize what we're doing, what you have to achieve. But man, there is no they. There is only in us in this scenario. And I really want to govern myself as a leader, um, as a friend, um, as an associate, um, and as just as a human in a way that um, makes the family photo mm-hmm. get bigger. Uh, and that's just how I, that's how I want to show up in the world. Just imagine if more people showed up every day with just that one thought. Mm-hmm. There is no they. Yeah. I love that. That's a wonderful note to end on. I want to thank you ladies both for being here. Um, I want to let people know how they can get a hold of you. Kathleen, the best way for people to ca- uh, connect with Kathleen is at LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. You can also email her at herat, H-E-R-A-T dot cat. K-A-T at gmail.com. And also, Rhonda, the best way to get with her is on LinkedIn. So I hope you guys get some connections from this and people reach out to you. And I'm so appreciative that you've been here with us on the Slapcast. One final note, next month on the Slapcast, you'll get to hear my interview with Ken Blanchard. Many of you are familiar with his work and his books, the most popular being The One Minute Manager. You will not want to miss July's podcast as Ken and I talk about giving people the answer to the final exam, turning traditional leadership on its head, and how true leaders actually work for their direct reports. Until then, take good care of yourself.